Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 76, The Latinist by Mark Prince. Apollo, using his bow, had just killed the terrifying serpent Python. The god proudly paraded himself, carrying his bow and arrows, a weapon that would become one of his symbols. The archer god crossed paths with Eros, the god of love, as he was practicing his accuracy. Despite his childish figure, he had an elegant and noble posture with the bow. Feeling jealous after seeing the godchild using the ark so majestically, Apollo decided to mess with Eros's pride. Hey boy, what do you think you're doing, handling such a noble instrument with that carelessness? Don't you know that now, all over the world, people refer to the ark as Apollo's weapon because I used it to defeat the most dreadful of monsters? Eros didn't pay attention to his provocations, he turned his back to Apollo and started to walk away, but the solar god kept taunting him. That's right, go away. With that poor accuracy of yours, you will never do a feat like mine. That last of Apollo's insult extrapolated the patience of the god of love, who quickly faced him, picking one of his golden arrows and firing his weapon, hitting the heart of the god Apollo, who fell to his knees. Eros had never crushed any big monster, but he had just put one of the most powerful gods on his knees. His arrow didn't really hurt him physically, but now the god Apollo was under the absolute influence of love. The solar god spotted a beautiful nymph. Her name was Daphne, Peneos' daughter, a river god. Apollo immediately fell in love with her, but Eros had yet to finish his lesson. He then hit Daphne's heart with a lead arrow making her feel disgust with Apollo. The god of light tried to get close to the nymph, who promptly moved away from him. Why are you running away from me? Can't you see I'm god Apollo? God of beauty, of music and prophecy, Apollo proudly said. Your figure makes me sick. Don't get any closer. I prefer to give myself to one of those nauseating satyrs. However, Apollo couldn't resist the powers of passion and tried to get closer to the nymph. She tried to run away, but Apollo kept chasing her. When the god was about to catch her, the nymph ran into the waters of her father's river, Peneos, the god river, who decided to help his daughter. Right when Apollo grabbed her, Daphne started to transform herself into a tree. Apollo, desolated, kissed the tree, and when he tried to touch the nymph's hair, he was left with laurel leaves in his hands. Daphne had been transformed into a laurel. Already resigned, Apollo said, I was denied the chance to love her, but from now on, you will be my sacred plant. From your leaves I'll make a laurel wreath, which I'll wear 
and I'll allow it to be worn by those who are living a moment of triumph. And from that day forward, the laurel wreath became a symbol of glory. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we have both read, whether we liked it or not, and determine whether it is worthy of its positive or negative reputation. Now, as I've complained about a couple episodes in a row, Tom took Valentine's Day, but we are recording on Valentine's Day, and I think I picked a pretty romantic book, Toxicity Notwithstanding. Well, with me on this ride is Tom Panneries. <laughs> I guess it's technically romantic because it involves Rome. <laughs> there you go. Yes. <laughs> no, yeah, we'll talk about that. That's more of like a tongue-in-cheek. It is not even I would even say it's not as romantic as Barbara King Solver's book that we did. So Yeah, Prodigal yes. Summer. It is pretty toxic, but we're gonna yeah. get into that. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. How is this weird, bizarre spring weather in winter treating you? The allergies are not fun, Mm. uh, you know, Mm. but uh, it hasn't been too bad. It's just unsettling to me. I I prefer colder weather when it's supposed to be cold. So, you know, but I guess it could be worse. It could be worse, yes. But, you know, this is for all the people who believe that or don't believe, I should say, global warming warming exists. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then Valentine's Day, thanks for spending the day with me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so that's what I was We're... doing. I was like, oh, well, I'll go on a run, and then uh, I'm going to podcast with Tom. <laughs> Can't have a better Valentine's uh... Day than that. We had a pretty good one. We just kind of hung out and, and, uh, and we don't really do, we're not, it's not like a huge thing for the two of us. So we got candy for each other. Oh. Yeah. Well, what's not as sweet? Uh, is the relationship between our two main characters? Oh, gosh, like, there yeah. There certainly is a perverted idea of what love is or isn't between the two. And, yes, we are going to talk about the Latinist. And, well, Tom, I, I guess even to begin, what is mm. your history with this particular book? This is it. Um, prior to you picking this book, I'd never heard of it. So um, this was completely new to me. It was new-ish for me. I had heard of it, and I think Professor Coca had emailed like or texted me something about this, just that it existed. And so I had been interested in it, even knowing kind of what the storyline was, that it's based off of the, the Daphne, or taking its cues from the Daphne and Apollo myth, um, as seen in all mm-hmm. of its metamorphoses. And... Then I went to white water rafting in in West Virginia, and at one point we took like a little day trip to a town that we were nearby, and there was a bookstore, and so I ended up getting this at the bookstore, but I had been waiting to read it. And so this this is also my history with it. I thought, well, what an intriguing idea that, you know, it's about Latin, because you don't find too many contemporary Latin based novels so i was excited Mm -hmm. about that and we'll we'll see if that excitement uh, lasted for both of us so (laughs) (laughs) now to talk about the author i did do some searching but 
he's I mean this is his first work so he he's he's, okay. he's a bit of a like a a baby uh, in a non-insulting way but just like he's I think working on building up his writing so there's not a lot so that's why this the blurb that I found is from his own website that's basically the most I could find about him so Mark Prince is a recent graduate of the University of Iowa Writers Workshop following his graduation he went on to teach for a year at UI Graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, Mark has received fellowships from the Truman Capote Trust, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and the Sun Valley Writers Conference. Previously, he studied literature at Williams College and Exeter College, Oxford. He lives and teaches fiction in Brooklyn, New York. So at least we can see that he has, because I was wondering, like, oh, did he study Latin, question mark? Because um, he, he I mean, it's clear, which is going to be one of my questions, of course, but it's clear that he does know what he's talking about in terms of classics and everything. But I yeah. think background at Oxford certainly lends itself well to this. Any, mm -hmm. I mean, we're just yeah, kind of diving, diving into this, but uh, anything before I go on to, I guess, the plot synopsis? No, I mean, the, the back of the... Uh... There was advanced praise for the Latinist. It's on the back of my uh, my hardcover edition here. That's um, a novel about love and scholarship, ego and obsession, coercion and consent. A brilliant, mar brilliant, marvelously infuriating puzzle of a book that combines the globe-trotting exploits of the Da Vinci Code with the smarts and literary gifts of A.S. Byatt, a terrific debut, Julie Schumacher, author of Dear Committee Members in the Shakespeare Requirement. So <laughs> so it, it did get its fair share of praise. I don't know if it won any prizes or was nominated for anything like that, though. I'm not sure. And I have the, the soft-covered version of it. I haven't heard – I mean, I was certainly looking to see if he received any accolades from it. And even looking at – because I was scouring the internet for plot synopsis, couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. And I really saw the same sort of uh, critiques on this um, that people enjoyed it for the most part and then became very frustrated. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So we're we're going to talk about that. So I, I suppose, though, that is a success because I remember I interviewed Jordan Gorfinkel. He said, you know, you don't want anyone bored like that. that you have failed if you're bored. So if people love mm -hmm. it or hate of you, you have succeeded because there's been some sort of emotional connection to it. So I guess it's true. And if you look at his little picture, he yeah. looks pretty young. I don't know if you've seen when he yeah, looks he does. Like yeah, he does look pretty young. Yeah, and you'd think he'd look like a nerd, but he's actually a pretty attractive man. So anyway. Yes, this is true. <laughs> I'll move on from that. So like I said, I couldn't find the plot synopsis. So I ended up writing for the first time ever a plot synopsis by hand. And I have to say, Tom is nuts for doing this all the time. <laughs> because it took me about an hour. I mean, I was watching the Super Bowl at the time, but it was a lot. It was a lot to get through yeah. and like sift through what is what is the detail that i need to include what don't i need to include that kind of stuff yeah well i have i have cribbed my fair share from or swiped my fair share from wikipedia and or uh cliff's notes so i'm not completely virtuous here okay <laughs> uh okay so this is my plot synopsis, and I go by parts. So, part one, <laughs> Tessa Thompson is holding a tutorial with student Florence at Oxford's Quadrangle when a cigarette butt is discovered in the area. The perpetrator of that cigarette is Christopher Eccles, Tessa's mentor and a professor there. He soon appears 
in the same space that Tessa and Florence are holding, asking Tessa to borrow her phone, but Tessa's phone is at a low percentage and he can't use it and he actually ignores Florence offering hers. So again, detail, why do you include that's all? You'll find out. We learn that Tessa doesn't have the best family life. She is an odd man out in a family of medical professionals. She's not really treated well. She had to care for her father as he died. She also has a tense relationship with her physician sister, Claire, who's really the last connection that she has. Tessa loves to focus on the poet Marius, but due to the dearth of material out there, she has to focus on other works like Ovid's Metamorphoses, in particular the section on Daphne and Apollo. She's a native Floridian, but gained the notice of Chris due to her paper on piety in Virgil's Aeneid, which she translated at like a quasi-Waffle House. Tessa has been having some difficulty lately as she has not heard back from many universities to which she has applied for employment after receiving a doctorate. Uh, she's on her way to receive the doctorate, so afterwards that's what she's looking for. And she's assuming that they are no's, and her boyfriend Ben has now left her. On the other side, Chris, his mother, is reaching the end of her days due to colon cancer, and his wife has left him after having an affair. So we've got these two main characters, not in the best of ways. Tessa receives an anonymous email that says she shouldn't ask Chris for a recommendation in the future and attaches an image of a rec letter that is pretty damaging. And it's not super negative, but it's so mediocre and read between the lines damaging that it's a problem. She first assumes it's a prank and contacts some people she knows, including Lucrezia, an anthropologist who keeps asking Tessa to come to Isola Sacra, and Liam, a fellow scholar. Now, Liam has received an offer to teach at a university, and this makes Tessa even more suspicious because he isn't as skilled a classicist. Everyone's pretty down on Liam, to be honest, in this book. Tessa begins to grow suspicious that this letter actually came from Chris, and once she catches him in a lie about actually having his cell phone, she asks him about the letter. He says this is a prank, and she leaves angry thinking of other people to call, and she ends up contacting Phoebe Higgins, a professor at UCLA, whom she met while delivering a paper in Edinburgh, and Higgins uh, doesn't get in contact with her right away. We flash back slightly to right after Ben left Tessa. Tessa ended up staying on Chris's couch after drinking too much, and while she was sleeping, Chris hacks into Tessa's email and makes a clone of it on his own computer or his cloud. And we now re realize the reason why he wanted Tessa's phone at the very beginning was so he could delete the anonymous email center because he can only read her email since they're uploaded to his cloud, not manipulate them in any way. Okay, part two. Tessa's working on, I guess, correcting or editing student work and them, thinking about Marius and also ignoring Chris's texts. We see her relationship with Lucrecia as beginning with Tessa asking her a question about two particular lines from Marius. Quote, were I deaf to you, my love, like divers to the bird call, I simply could not bear it, end quote. Lucrecia tells her about surfer's ear, an occlusion of the ear with bones, and says that there have been some discoveries at Isola Sacra, thus why she tells her to visit repeatedly. Lucrecia has made some more discoveries but will not send any photos and if Tessa doesn't come they're just going to find somebody else. 
Phoebe Higgins gets in touch with Tessa and basically confirms Tessa's suspicions that Chris wrote that bad letter. She also tells Tessa that while people took issue with the letter, especially since it stands in stark contrast with her CV, she's going to find it difficult finding employment. Chris appears outside of her apartment and begs to talk to her, sliding the quote-unquote real recommendation under her door, one dripping with praise. Part 3. Tessa calls Claire to seek her advice on what to do with Chris. Because, you know, she's an adult and doesn't know what she should do. Claire tells her to report him, or at the very least, come to New Jersey, where Claire is. She ends up sending her money for this uh, We later on. Uh, we hear throughout that Tessa is having some financial difficulties. Meanwhile, Chris continues to debate with Tessa via text about a footnote regarding the ironic or true nature of Apollo's love towards Daphne and that her paper will not be published without mentioning it. Chris visits his mother who has had a fall and the people at hospice need her plan of action papers. He finds them in her house in this freezer, which is the safest place according to his mother, and also tends to her sheep. He contacts a colleague, Edmund Martizzi, whom he helped in the way of one of his students a few years ago by putting in a vote, a good vote to win something, and he wants to call in that favor and have him vote for Tessa for a particular award. So hopefully that wasn't too confusing. In another flashback, we also learn that Tessa chose to go to Edinburgh to present a paper that received a great deal of accolades afterwards, actually, rather than Ben's father's funeral. So we're getting a better picture of who Tessa is and also how that relationship failed or why. Tessa goes to her thesis defense on Daphne and Apollo and gets overly defensive towards one of her examiners. Chris catches up with her afterwards and says she can recover from this and she'll probably have to apologize to that guy. She walks off and he asks if she's going to an important luncheon, but she doesn't respond. At home, he calls Ben for some reason and the call does not go well with him telling her some hard truths about herself and their relationship and he basically says don't contact me again. Since the only offer she has to teach is at West Falling, where she currently is, she decides to at least get the visa process going. When she receives funds from Claire to go to New Jersey, she makes a decision. Part four. Instead of going to New Jersey, which was the whole purpose of that money, she goes to Isola Sacra and the site of the dig with Lucrecia. Lucrecia is under the impression that Westphalen gave her funds for travel, and at first Claire doesn't dissuade her of this, but then tells her everything about Chris and the letter of wreck. She also asks that Lucrecia does not tell her own advisor about Claire being there or about their future discoveries because he knows and will communicate with Chris. Now this puts Lucrezia in a difficult position and a, probably that was an unethical thing to ask but she agrees for now. Through a series of leads and discoveries the tomb of Marius and his wife Sopikia is found. Zopikia's bones show that she had a foot amputation, leading Claire to surmise she is the actual author of the poems attributed to Marius, given the fact that they use coliums or limping iams as the meter. Part 5 Tessa uses the rest of her money for a journey to Copenhagen to speak with an expert on material called the Suda, which speaks to Marius and Sulpicia, and then she returns to England. Chris, now knowing where Tessa has gone, because he didn't know for a while and was kind of stalking her, looking at her apartment, all that stuff, tracks her email and finds one about Isola Sacra and Marius. He calls Ed Trelawney, Lucrezia's mentor, and asks about Marius and what's going on with Isola Sacra. But since Ed doesn't know, a bunch of alarms are now going off and uh, this is going to be a problem for Lucrezia. 
He buys a, Chris buys a particular reference book for Tessa and goes to meet her. He admits to writing the bad rec letter finally and says it was out of professional concern and that she's not ready to leave the haloed halls of Westphalia. He also mentions Marius and tries to give her the book he got her, but she is alarmed because when did she ever mention Marius? She excuses herself and calls Lucrezia about it, both accusing each other and others about the leak. And now, as I said, Lucrezia is in trouble. Tessa leaves the cafe and doesn't take the book with her. Now she has a suspicion that Chris is surveilling her. She finds a fake email on the internet for one of the universities to which she applied and sends herself an employment offer and waits to see if Chris says anything about it. Meanwhile, she works on a paper she will present at an upcoming conference in Oxford and gets notes about uh, derelict rent from her landlord. On the day of the conference, she is told that there is a last-minute shift in order, and Chris is presenting before her now, immediately before her. <sighs> she basically has a panic attack, goes to a closet, and Chris finds her beforehand and tells her not to present on Isola Sacra before us already, or he will. She does not back down, and he presents on the findings to great admiration of others, but says the bone belonged to Marius. So Tessa has to now skip over much of her research and wifelong pursuit of Marius's material, but she is able to embarrass Chris by seeing the truth about Sapicia. After the presentation, Tessa is pretty popular and tries to escape before she gets overwhelmed. Phoebe Higgins catches her and offers her a temporary position at UCLA, which could turn into more, but it's a chance. She also subtly warns about whatever relationship she and Chris have. Tessa returns to her apartment only to be locked out by her landlord. Chris has been following her after the presentation and offers her his flat, given he will be at his mother's house. Chris's mother soon dies, and he is desperate for Tessa to be with him at the funeral. She stays with him for a while. There are some minor intimacies, which are very, makes me uncomfortable, but she leaves. At Chris's flat, Tessa thinks she's going to have a few more days alone, but Chris returns. He confesses his love to her, finally admits he wrote the bad recommendation because he wanted to keep her with him. So finally, the third, third time of confessing is the charm. Uh, she yells that he doesn't love her and then proceeds <sighs> and then proceeds a somewhat violent love scene that leaves Chris unfulfilled and Tessa sleeping upstairs. Did they have sex? I don't know. I asked Tom and <laughs> Tom responded, geez, Stella, don't make me reread that. And I said, ha ha. All right. All right. So Tom doesn't know either. I mean, I think. It was, close. it was very close. I don't know. I think if we take sex like very technically and like saying you know penetration is involved, I don't think it happened. Mm -hmm. But if we take sex as yeah. like the entire act, like that there is intimacy involved, I think we could say that there was sex. I mean, his underwear was off. I don't know whatever was going on, yeah, but I read it a couple they, times. They got, they got yeah. the third base. At the very least, I yeah. Guess, yeah. I guess you could say it was third base. I was so it's... aghast at this scene. I read it a couple times, just like trying to figure oh. out what the heck was going on, which we'll talk about. But um, yeah. this is where people lose it, I think, in 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 the the reviews that I was reading. So, anyways, yeah. it it doesn't work out. It's it's a very it's it's a strange scene. The next day, Tessa gets the visa paperwork and returns to Chris's flat. He mentions the fake positions she re received, i.e. inadvertently confessing to hacking her email, and she loses it. He confesses what he has done and becomes violent with a near rape on the way until Tessa hits him in the head with a paperweight, though his fall and hitting his head on the counter is the greater impact. 
Dazed, he makes his way to the bathroom and collapses again. She calls 999 and Claire in a panic, and Claire suggests that he just fell in the bathroom and she doesn't fully know what happened. So she's got to choose what to do there. Part 6, Dr. Tessa Thompson is now interim head of classics at West Valley in Chris's office, temporarily. Uh, the Sopikia revelation and the discoveries that he stole the Sacra have cemented Tessa's history, not to mention her paper published on Daphne and Apollo. Lucretia visits and Tessa apologizes for everything that, th everything that happened at Isola Sacra and asks her to return to that site and help them out, finish it up. But Lucretia turns her down. She's more concerned about her. I, well, I think she feels very burned and also she's focusing on the wedding uh, to an Italian man that she met there. We also learn that Chris is in a minimally conscious state and may never recover his use of language. Unlike Apollo, who was able to get off scot-free, Chris has seemingly paid a price for his transgressions against his own Daphne. And thus ends the Latinist. Oh, Tom, Tom, Tom. Now, I'm scared about this, Tom. But did you like this? Tom, did you leave call? Tom, you're muted. Sorry. Oh my gosh. Um. I had a really mixed reaction to this book. I read most of it in a day or two because because um, it, it was really it was really intriguing. Um, I, there were points where I just couldn't put it down because I just wanted to see what was going to happen. For the most part, I think it's really well written. Uh, I have some quibbles with a few things and some major issues with a couple of things. Um, you can probably tell what one of them is, but I don't know if I like this or, or not like it was for, for what it was, I enjoyed reading it. But by the end I was just like, I mean, I hated Chris, like <laughs> yeah. anytime Tessa was at Tessa was involved and in, she was at, especially the scenes like, um, in, in, in Isola Sacra, that was intriguing to me. That was like where I was like really, really invested in like what she was finding, what she was discovering. I found like the whole mystery of it, like really, really cool. And I was like, you know, just the whole archeological part of it. It was like, this is fascinating. And we'd cut back to him. And I was just like, I, I just don't want him in this book. I was like, so like there, I was getting physically repulsed by this man. So it's like just well, he wasn't even compelling. I just didn't want him there. So he kind of got what he deserved at the end, or he definitely did. But at the same time, I'm like, by the end, I was just like, just kind of glad it was over. So yeah. So yeah, it's so a kind of a mixed feeling about it. I I would say that, and this is something that I read like a couple critiques that I liked about ninety percent of it, and I would agree with that. Like I liked ninety percent of this. I mean, it comes to me Latin heart. Uh, Daphne and Paulo is certain is something that oh I yeah I totally see why you picked yeah this. <laughs> Ovid seeing how how this would translate to modern day I, I was very intrigued by that and unfortunately like so my book has this which we'll use I think for for the majority of our questions this like reader's guide at the end mm -hmm. and I was just seeing how many were there and I unfortunately like spoiled myself briefly because number mm. 10 says did you see chris and tessa's brief coupling as inevitable and i yeah. was not there yet and i was like you've got to be kidding they better not and so when i got to that point i was like 
I was livid. I just could not believe what I was reading. So some of these things, which I want to like suss out, yeah, kind of that stuff, like was this necessary? And it's interesting because I think in our texting conversation, you had made a comment about like, this is this is book was clearly written by like a white heterosexual male. I was like, I, mm-hmm. I guess one could say that. But, you know, if also you are uh, taking its roots from a poem that's also written by, you know, a white heterosexual male and, and you've got this God who's chasing after this innocent woman. Of course, gods are just entitled and, and free to take whatever they want. Uh, it all kind of goes there. I would agree. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that there's necessarily anything redeeming about Chris with the exception of his like love of Latin and that he loved something so much, but it's the fact that he hacked in and he's like proud of himself when he doesn't check her email is ridiculous. And then you would expect knowing perhaps the Daphne and Apollo myth that Tessa would be really like pure white as snow pure. But as you progress, you you start to see the flaws in her character as well, mm-hmm. um, which we can we can certainly talk about. So I would say like I enjoyed yeah ninety percent of this, and then some things I think like it went too far, and I'm also unsure about that ending. Just that was that too easy. I mean it's nice that it happened in terms of we we didn't have a character raped. And it did yeah. turn the myth on its head, like Lucrezia was saying, how Apollo should have been the one who was forever metamorphosed rather than Daphne. And so Chris gets that for his his perpetration of kind of the violence and his possession and everything. Uh, but you just wonder would mm-hmm. that have happened in real life? Unfortunately, probably not. So it's a, it's a uh, it's a complicated. I'm interested to see what Robert has to say because he's not been liking yeah. my picks recently. So it'll be interesting. But I feel like if you are a Latinx, which um, is my first question, is do you feel like this is for everyone, or do you think that you need to have a classical background to fully appreciate it? I don't think you do because the dynamic between the two of them and the misogynist way he behaves could be really in any position you know academia is not the only place where men higher up try to sabotage the careers of women who they want to control right so i think anybody can relate to that sort of storyline um i think it certainly helps now i don't have a classics background most of my background, I know I've read some things because of what was assigned to me in college and then what I teach as a, um, as a ninth grade uh, English teacher. So um, unfortunately, like I think, as I've said before, most of what I've read is Greek and not Latin. Mm. But, um, you know, so in other words, like, you know, I've read Aeneid a couple of times because I read it in college and then we did it for the show. But like, you know, you want to talk about the classics and I'll talk like the Odyssey for days. Right. So so. Having that and having read my fair share of Greek mythology as well, I follow it, right? I, I was like, you know, and then and then the other thing was I'm not in academia per se because I'm an I'm a high school teacher, but knowing some people who are and and kind of following some of those people in like Twitter circles and things like that, uh, I was able to it was a little bit of a window into there for me that I was able to kind of follow it pretty well. So I don't think you need it, but it certainly does uh enhance that experience yeah yeah i would agree i mean i really 
loved it. I loved seeing it. I loved when Latin was put in there, and of course, then they would translate it. But it was just, it was super fun, and yeah, I don't, I, I think that it is for everyone because it is a tale as old as time almost, uh, and it is a thriller novel at the very base, I would say. But then you get into mm-hmm kind of historical artifacts and and latin so i think maybe the more you know the more you appreciate but we'd have to see like joe schmo off the street what he would have to say if he read this but had no (laughs) background in history or classics or anything but okay where to begin where to begin got color blindness we've got violence here well we'll we'll go this violence here Mm -hmm. it's interesting because of course we just had Streetcar Named Desire, and we brought up and discussed the fact that there's kind of violence always simmering beneath the surface. And this was also something that I had seen. Like, he would twitch if somebody said no to him, like Tessa, for instance, or if, you know, someone talking back, something like that. But not as, Mm -hmm. I I think, forthright or um, obvious as Stanley. So do you feel like seeing this, did you notice those moments? I guess I'll ask. And then do you feel like did, the, the yeah. ending is inevitable in this case? Or is it just too on the nose given the source material that it is referencing, uh, i.e. Daphne and Apollo? The fact that he is, I mean, he's about to be pretty violent with her and, and sexually assault her. It logically, it, I, you see, I think it's I think it's a little too on the nose. Okay. I had, but when it when it happened, I wasn't surprised because I felt like that's where we were headed. It's not the scene with him assaulting her and her hitting with the the Daphne Apollo statue, which really was on the nose, um, that got me. It's the scene of her and him in that kind of sex where she's like scratching his back and getting violent. And I remember he grabs her hair to like her, like neck kind of snaps. Yeah. Yeah. Which is and just like a ends, really bad like, at that moment. That's when she kind of snaps. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it kind of, he telegraphs a little bit and then you can kind of see the wheels turning in his head for the excuse he's going to make when he finishes, if he's successful at what he's doing. And that like, that's the re like she made him do this because she did that. Like, you know, a couple of days prior or whatever it was, you know, I can kind of like see his rationale for it, um, which is horrific, but, you know, just kind of giving you kind of an idea of like how his mind works. I, it just, it, I don't know. It's like, I, you know, I guess, I guess it had to happen in the way he was writing it. I just, it, it was a little too like, why all the sex and the rape now? Like, you know, cause there was nothing prior to that either. Even with his own ex wife, there never seemed to really be much of a suggestion that there was anything like that between the two of them. Yeah. Although the stalking ended up making sense because he was like, he was flashing back to when he was following his ex wife around. He was following her around trying to figure out whether or not she was having an affair. So like the idea that he is that skilled at, um, manipulating Tessa through, you know, getting her email and everything makes sense by establishing that particular backstory that, oh, he's done this before yeah. and he would more than likely do it again to whoever, um, whoever he picked up, like 
Florence or whomever came after Tessa after Tess left. Yeah. Tessa, sorry. Yeah. Not Tess. Huh? Totally different novel. Sorry, oh, Alan. Oh, gosh, you already covered that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the threads are there. Uh, the stalking that you mentioned, the moments that I talked about. They, he doesn't seem as much of like a sexual being until he is with Tessa. And then it mostly happens at the end. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only time I can think of him sort of objectifying a woman is that administrator at the hospice. And yeah. then he kind of compares her to Tessa. So it is very interesting. But I, I also wonder, and I guess this is just like, well, you just never know when, when people are going to snap and do these sorts of things. Why he was so like befuddled during the initial sex scene. That he doesn't, like, she just walks away and goes to bed upstairs. But that would have been the time that I've expected something to happen. So I'm very surprised that um, that she was able to get out of that one very easily. But it could be just because, well, now she's really trapped him. Now she's really, there's, like, no going back after this because she can kind of maybe forgive you about the rec letter, but you have hacked her email. So I think maybe he's seen like he's losing control. And so there's only one way to, to potentially get it back. It's clearly a power and control yeah. thing and waiting for when he has the opportunity to be on the, like to truly be on the offensive as opposed to just reacting is probably more an issue of control and power for him too. Cause if he had done something at that moment, it, I don't know. It, it would have, I think waiting and then waiting and then give, taking his chance, waiting for his moment and taking his chance when he did showed more of a control or power effort on his part because he was very, very deliberate in what he was doing at the end there, as opposed to if he had um, kind of gone back at her that night, it would have been reactionary. Mm. And that's not what he wanted out of it. I hope I'm making sense there. I'm not trying to condone anything this guy no. did, but I'm trying to like, okay, like how does the logic play out in his mind? Yeah. It's like he goes up into the room and, and reinitiates this really rough. And it probably is, um, probably is assault, you know, like, you know, it, or it might, it, it's too, or maybe it's too gray area or whatever. It just seems like, him getting her back that night and, and or, or or playing it off as getting caught up in the moment, not enough of a statement for her to really understand like what power he has over her. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really hard to say that it's really hard to say this because this is not the way I think, but I'm thinking like, how would you write this character? And like the night, if he, if he did it that night, she would have felt guilty for leading. He would have made her. No, she wouldn't have felt guilty. He would have tried to make her feel guilty for leading him on or leading him into that. Look at what you made me do, which is still a manipulation thing. But for him, maybe the greater thing is like, you know, no, I'm going to take what is mine. Cause you, you know, like in other words, I need to get control back. So I'm going to, and this is scarier actually at the end there than, than the night that they had together. Yeah. So, and I guess he was still messed up about his mom in the first one, so perhaps that he wasn't in that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I I thought the stuff with the sheep was cute, but because sheep are cute, but <laughs> I don't want to feel any sympathy for somebody like that. 
it seemed like a ham-fisted way for to make him seem like you know it seemed like a ham-fisted way for him to seem like three-dimensional or something when mm-hmm. i was just like no i really don't care about this guy's mother so, so you think that both of those tactics, the fact that he, his mother's dying and his wife left him, you think that those were failed attempts at making readers sympathetic towards this otherwise ghastly character? Hmm. The mother, yes. The wife, no. Okay. I think the wife leaving him gives us motivation. And, or, or adds to the motivation. So it doesn't add to the sympathy. It adds to the motivation. It gives us a little bit of backstory. And it shows it helps us see or understand why he is capable of what he did to Tassa. Like I said, like, you know, so like, how the heck did this guy do the thing? And then, like, you see how, like, his, how, how easy it became to track his wife and everything. It's like, oh, okay. So with the wife, you know, we know more about how awful he is before we really see the whole thing with the wife. And so it just that kind of tracks. And now you're like, oh, he he needs he needs somebody to lord over and he wasn't going to be able to do it to his wife anymore. So he's got this new assistant or whatever it is. And it's like, you know, that that works um, with the mother. I actually like the mother's character. I thought that I thought those scenes were very well written, mm-hmm. you know, and and. It was a it, it was um, a real good uh, portrayal of when somebody is going through something like that and they have to uh, you know they have to be the caretaker. But even at the same time, it's just it gives us a little bit of an eye on on the control he would like over the whole situation. Uh, especially because he, she has a living will, right? Mm-hmm. So, and the living will is essentially the living will essentially has a DNR on it. You know, he procrastinates on getting them the papers, and he has the papers. He finds them in the freezer because he knew that's where she would hide them or keep them. But then, like he he takes like forever to give them to the hospital because it's just again it's because something is slipping out of his control, and we get a little bit of his backstory to where the point where he was kind of emotionally abused yeah. as a child but at the same time i don't i get it and i get you're trying to give us kind of a full portrait of this guy but i don't want to feel bad for him in any way so yeah well i guess it explains like some of where his pathologies came from at, at the at the very least do you feel like he loved tessa I think in his mind, I think he did. And I think, I think he, he had feelings for her. I, I don't think there's any denying that. I think the I love you thing at the end was cloying, a cloying way to get her back to him, which is why she, and she saw right through, which is why she started like, I think she smacked him. I know she like raked her fingernails down his back or something when they were in this bit his ear too this weird coitus thing but the (laughs) weird very very weird coitus that was going on Uh, and but like because she because he kept telling her she's like and she's basically like bs 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 you know like you know you, you don't because she just couldn't believe anything he said anymore i want to say that's like a, a part of that is true and a part of it is him like being a desperate little child trying to get back with her. Just trying to manipulate her. Like, but I love you. Yeah. 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 I think it is one of those, like he believes it to be true, but he, he has this kind of idea 
that I think doesn't match up with what actual love is. Mm-hmm. And I think it is, yeah, very power and, and control-based. Yeah. Do you think Tessa loves Chris? I mean, there's that one time he says, you know, who 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 do you love or whom do you love? And she never responds. I think that on some level she did. And part of this book is about her essentially getting over all of this, mm-hmm. you know, that she's I think she's she is. She, it's not that her chance like him doing that to her not only um like really messed with her chances at you know at life uh at her career but i think it broke her heart because she 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 idolized him in mm-hmm. some way right and then she i think she did love him on some level but wasn't fully prepared to realize those feelings especially since she had a boyfriend at the time right and the the one time where it was like you know maybe it is possible that these are this is around the time that these things would come out and all of a sudden she gets this and she has to she has to work her way through a lot to figure out like what is actually true and and um, I think it shatters part of her in a certain to a certain extent um, and I think we see that pretty well. Yeah, it's I think the the line that she said maybe a couple times, I think one internally and one directly to Chris is that, well, at least now I know what you really thought of me. Like that Mm -hmm. letter that he actually sent, she feels like that is his honest opinion. And he says, no, no, it's all this other stuff. Yeah. I think Mm. number one, all the rest of the cast knows what's up because she has to constantly deny to Ben, to Lucrezia, to Phoebe Higgins, that, you know, there's nothing going on. But I think they realize that it's, um, yeah, and Liam and his wife, his wife kind of drops that zinger that uh, Tessa gets angry at. Uh, So they all know, like, there's something going on, even if nothing actually happened. And I think also the fact that she can't ever separate herself from him, that she... You know, she's really upset at these things that are happening that he did to her, but she still entertains discussions or text conversations with him, even if, you know, it might be a couple days until she responds. Whereas I think so if you did not have those feelings, you'd be cutting them off immediately. You would be reporting them immediately. Like you'd be listening to Mm -hmm. Sister Claire, who told you everything that you were supposed to do. Um, even at the end, the fact that he is in that, you know, minimally conscious state and she thinks about how he loves cucumber water and is bringing, like, she's still in love with him. Unfortunately, that's one of the things that frustrates me about this it, novel is like, it, what uh, are you doing? Yeah, it's such a toxic relationship, too. Yeah. And I think we've both known people whose relationships with um, let's just say ex-boyfriends or ex-girlfriends or whatever is just this constant parade of toxic behavior. Like why you keep going back to this person. And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about like kind of the cycle of abuse thing. I'm talking about like the boyfriend treats you like crap, you know? So, I mean, and, and, or, or the way, but, but in some cases, yeah, there is this sort of like way, why do you keep going back to this, this person? And it is so frustrating. Yeah. Especially since she she kind of gets what she wants at the end, but you're right. And then she's like, you know, and it's even if it were her kind of ex- exercising some sort of weird control over him and his state or like winning out, like what's the point of key, of staying around him? You won. Leave. <laughs> 
you know, put him in your rear view. I think she also, I think, realizes how heady power is because th- their thighs touching or their legs touching or whatever, and that his speech stuttered when that happened when they were sitting next to each other on the couch at the, I guess, post-funeral was just like, what's happening here? And she was even saying, like, you know, that she knows the power that she has over him. So I guess now it's like a reversal. Like, she loves that she has this power over him. So it's unfortunately, it turns her into, I don't want to say a villain, but like an antagonist character. Because clearly she was the protagonist, he was the antagonist. But as we progress, Tessa consistently makes poor decisions because she's only thinking kind of about herself. And so mm-hmm. she's making, like, unethical choices, which are getting other people in trouble. And then she, I would almost say that she stole money from Claire because Claire only gave her that money to come to New Jersey, not to go to Italy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. unfortunately, her 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 character takes a bit of damage, which, which I was disappointed about. But do you feel like this is more realistic in terms of real life, or would you have wanted to see Tessa stay on the up and up? I want to say it actually is kind of realistic. Tess is the type of person who's really immature. And um, I mean, it's crisp on a certain whole other certain level. But she she's not flighty, but she certainly you're right. The self-centeredness is something that that is is really prominent. And um, when she uh, like I, I liked the whole Italy segment just because I found the whole thing fascinating. But you're right. It was like she thought she was doing the right thing there by like getting Lucretia to like, you know, not tell her mentor because of like the things that have been going on. But she wasn't. Com- there had to be a way to be completely honest with the parties involved. Right. But I know. But at the same time, like these people all talk to each other. It's a very incestuous sort of climate in in a in a in something as small as a classics the classics department you know things like that the idea that everybody talks to each other and you have to be careful and etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah it, it, it does she does kind of she's kind of screw her friend over there and that that's that's one thing where she kind of half apologizes for it or you know call when she calls up lucretia and is accusing her of um the stuff that's going on i mean i give tessa credit for coming up with the fake email yeah and i give prince credit for letting it go away for long enough that when it comes up again it's like oh yeah she did that so because it's like it comes up like she 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 had put the email out there and then a bunch of other things happen and it's like so it's a few chapters later it's not like right away so it's just a long enough for it to be kind of in the back of our mind but not like at the forefront and when he just slips and says ohio even she is like yeah. ohio oh, oh, oh like even she kind yeah, of forgot and i i thought i i thought that was a nice touch because that was that was very realistic because the the your your schemes or your traps aren't always um sprung uh right away and and I thought that was pretty cool, but but yeah, I, I, I yeah, she's I don't know if she's antagonistic. She's definitely darker at the end, yeah. but in the same way, almost uh, there are some of uh, you know, and I see a little bit of growth and maturity in her there at the end. But yeah, like she's not the most likable character either. I really liked her in the beginning, but then mm-hmm. it just kind of started to go down, down from there. 
Uh, even in how she kind of spoke Stella, about, yeah, a man is writing. Yeah, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> do you think that's true? Like, would you say that that's the reason why? I think the the sex scene certainly. Like, I was like, even I was like, dude, edit this. Like, I mean, I've uh, when I was fifteen, I read penthouse letters that were more like just realistic than that. But no, really, it's just I, I think there were things that were like, you know, especially just some of the character beats of her where I, you have a question here of him masculinizing her. Yeah, especially in terms of the I guess the academic world. Yeah. Um, with some of the behavior, I think he's kind of getting there. He he is almost toward the end starting to write her as if she's a man or he's trying like, you know, trying to do that. And I don't know how much of a grasp he has on how women function or think or work like, you know, but at the same time, I like, I don't know. I like this. Feel free to ask the question so that the, the listeners know what we're talking about, because I really do like this question. So it's that she's a female protagonist fighting for recognition within the male dominated Academy in a field in which the figures studied are overwhelmingly male. And she finds herself at odds with her male advisor. How do we see Mark Prinz, the author masculinize Tessa or is ambition inherently tied to masculinity? I think I, I kind of approached the masculinized part. The second part of the question about ambition inherently tied to masculinity I think that is a, forgive the phrase, I think that's a social construct in that men would like to think it is, but women are just ambitious as as ambitious as men. It's just that when you are repressed for thousands, millennia, the idea that ambition and masculinity go hand in hand gets established because they've been oppressing you right so i i don't i don't think i don't think that there's anything about femininity that says you cannot be ambitious so i think it's a lie to say well you know the the, the to, to to have ambition be kind of like a masculine trait um because i think that just comes from centuries millennia of oppression of women yeah and so. just the idea that if if a woman is ambitious she's like overstepping and, and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff yeah it ties into that whole um really really sexist trope that we that like we might have seen in um in our childhood in the uh in the 80s of the man the 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 ball busting working woman professional you know the idea that that she has traded her femininity for whatever managerial position. Oh, she doesn't have kids, you know, like that whole, that whole dichotomy that they've tried to, and they still try to push this in the press, especially in, in some circles that, um, of the, the, the working corporate mom versus, or the working corporate woman versus the, the, the mom, you know, and those sorts of things as if one isn't as feminine as the other or something. And, and so we have, you know, they, they try to push that, that, that mommy wars crap, right? They try to push that dichotomy still in the media. And I think he's, he, I think he's a little bit guilty of trying to do it here because I don't know if he knows how to write a woman who is, I don't know. I don't know if he knows how to write a strong feminine woman. <laughs> I know there's a lot coming from me. He's a complete idiot, but you know that's that's just I'm just kind of wondering that aloud. No, I, yeah, might be true. I don't. I mean, the fact that she damages Lucretia 
and Lucrecia's own ambition and her placement mm-hmm. in that because that was her site really. And then Tessa came over and was asking all of these favors, and then the poop hit the fan, and then you know Lucrecia kind of left the the scene and everything because she probably got in trouble with yeah. her mentor. And so that's like a prime. So one could say, oh, is that a prime example of a woman going to the top and not thinking about the other women that are with her? Because I do believe, you know, that I think women should support women. Or is oh, yeah. that a, a male, like, vision of, well, this is what's going to happen. Tessa's going to go to the top and no, she's going to just knock anyone off who's there. Just like, you know, competition. That's what a man would do. Maybe. Um. Maybe. I, I mean, if that is how, I mean, that's just a bad, it's a bad character flaw for Tessa if he didn't intend yeah. that. But then it is just a, a bad stereotype and um, portrayal of oh, a woman. It's a terrible if she stereotype. did not intend to do that, unfortunately, that he's kind of making her. I mean, how much would this story change if Tessa were Trent Thompson? What aspects of it would have mm, changed? I think there would have been more like a fist fight. <laughs> it would have been more. Yeah, it would, it would have been way more of an aggressive sort of. Um, relationship. I don't think that somebody like Chris can stand, would have been able to handle a man standing up to him. Yeah. Because I think he is. And I'm not saying it's because women are weak, but like men like that have more respect for men than women. And I don't think it would have, I don't think he would have won or, or, or he would have worked the way he did, even if he was trying to take a Trent down. It would have been done in a different way. And going back to the thing with Lucretia, I, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, I got the sense that all of what she did to her was, was a total accident because she kind of bumbled her way through doing that. Like she was trying to protect her own hide and not get, or or she was trying to protect, like what she was doing because she knew Chris, she knew Chris was going to try to steal, to try to undermine her in some sort of way. So I didn't see her as trying to compete with Lucretia for anything. I thought she was she was working like towards some sort of self preservation, and Lucretia was just an unfortunate victim. No, I would agree. I just think that yeah. her choices, though, led to Lucretia's um, oh, yeah. downfall, for sure. Yeah. No, I would yeah. say that they were more collegial, yeah. if anything, during that mm-hmm. trip. It's just when the men got involved, everything got all messed up. And, of course, yep. Lucretia had to report Shocker. to a man. So it was like, yeah. these women, it, it's almost as if without men in, in their circle, they would be able to make their discoveries and um, be lauded for it, but they have to have some man attached in order to give them legitimacy. Yes, and I think that is uh, um, as far as as uh, you know. Again, I'm only speaking from what my very few observations of academia are, but that seems to track for me that it is a very male centered and. Um, often misogynist place so they they have to rely on the um uh, approval of men yeah. for what they want to do and I, I think you i think you put that really really well and i mean it it speaks also on the narrative level with what they are with what i think tessa was talking about how you know women aren't transcribed or those manuscripts weren't very much copied by the monks because mm-hmm weren't seen as important so it's like oh yeah. the same thing as you know these women and in, in uh history as writers and poets they 
we won't find them as much because they were not seen as being worthy, I guess, or having any work. Yeah, we're still uncovering things, which which is part of what made this fascinating. When she figured out the whole thing about it was his wife. And, and and the amputated foot and um, the scene at the end where the, the conference where like she just and she 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 bumbles way through the introduction too she yeah. she is I, I'm like okay like you know like, this is where I say like you know yeah he he knows how to write pretty well because he writes the scene with her and she's visibly shaken and trying really hard not to to show it right mm-hmm. and then but then like essentially having realized that he picked up on everything, but the one thing that is the most important part of her whole uh, argument, so to speak, I don't even know what we're, what we're, if I'm using the right noun. And it's the fact that no, it was never Marius. It was uh sculpt. So And she just, she dunks him. And I'm like that. And to me, so this is, I think this is one of the reasons I, I hated the sex scene so much. Because to me, this is how you take this guy down. There's nothing more important to him than his damn reputation. He's so pretentious. You know, the discussions he has with her and how dis- his tone, I mean, Prince got the tone correct. That, that pretentious, dismissive tone i had professors like this in college and they were such trying not to curse a-holes oh which is anyway no it well it's interesting because there was a question about tessa's relationship with her father and Mm -hmm. she describes her father as a quote brilliant with a short temper end quote and the question is, does this characterization shed light on Tess's own character and how, if at all, is her relationship with her father reflected in her relationship with Chris? And, I, yeah, I wondered how Tessa was able to put up with Chris at all because it seemed mm-hmm. like their relationship was fraught and sometimes congenial. Um, mm-hmm. But they were just constantly arguing about things, which I guess could be fine if you're having – you know, an academic argument just seems like it was always very tense, but I guess she's used to it. And it's almost that cliche of women looking for their fathers and their partners. And so I feel like if that is how she describes her father and she was, you know, didn't have the best relationship, but she was the one that, you know, kind of helped him in the end, not by choice. It didn't seem like then I guess she's kind of built it up and that that seems comfortable to her and and that's why she is with Chris. Yeah, because it kind of fell upon her that she was supposed to take care of him because because everybody else had their lives and at that point she was no like it, no it's I just can, so weird like why are you making it. the Latinist do this when there are other physicians in the but, family but oh they they're all busy mm-hmm. and, and you don't have a job right now so guess what you're the one who gets I can totally see that that's a very realistic sort of um, way to treat somebody um, yeah it is an unfortunate stereotype that women end up looking for their fathers and their and their husbands you know whatever you know, you marry your father that type of thing does kind of work here the debates they were having there's that there's also the whole idea that like you know when you're because she's very insecure right and um which is one of her character flaws and when you're that insecure you would think that this sort of spirited debate and i'm using quotes up against the air quotes up against the mic 
is like what you should get in academia when it's like, no, this person is bullying you and undermining you and being a real, real jerk to you. But you don't recognize it because you think it's just a spirited debate about Ovid or something. It's been like with the footnote. Oh, my God. Like, yes. like the whole thing. And I don't know. Did, did she need the footnote there or not? But like it's a like the. I, I do like the fact that he made it a footnote I, because it's one of those things that are like this, like how consequential is a footnote, right? <laughs> Unless it's like a source citation, it's probably not that consequential. And yet that's him. He will, he, so it was a, it was a good um, example of his character. But yeah, I, I wonder, you know, I, I think it, it's an unfortunate character flaw of hers, but it does, it fit with everything else that we saw. Do you feel like Chris's colorblindness is symbolic for anything? I was thinking about that, and I was trying to figure out if it was or not. I can't tell you if it is. Yeah, what do you think? I think because it's such a character trait that is mentioned mm -hmm. repeatedly, I feel like it has something to do with Chris. The only thing I could say is like his inability to see colors is also his inability to see right from wrong and that he's crossing lines. Mm. You know, like okay. ethical and moral yeah. boundaries. Yeah. And he has to rely on other people to tell him like what color something is cuz like his mother would tell him and yeah. you know, other people would have to yell at him and be like this this is so messed up what you're doing that's probably the only <laughs> the only thing i could yeah. think of yeah no that makes that makes sense that's, pro that's probably the, the best answer um for there i do have a question because this has been bugging me and and just tell me if if i missed it who wrote the email i don't know that we ever know i think it was because <sighs> we know phoebe higgins didn't but no we know she, she didn't yeah she think because from her, we know that there were other people who were a bit put out mm -hmm. by this and tried to advocate for Tessa. I think that that it might be from some of the like one of those people that thought, well, her CV is yeah. really good. Why would this professor uh, do this? Yeah, I don't know. I guess in real life, you would never actually find you could. It's very possible that you would never find out. But it did kind of bug me yeah and the other thing that bugged me and this is a really small nitpick and then we can get back to kind of the questions here because this is an interesting discussion there's two times where he's driving back and in or back and forth to his mom's farm where he's kind of driving along and there's like a really sharp curve and there's an accident at one point i really thought someone in this book was going to get in a car crash at that curve yeah the way it was described He's fixated, and then it never comes up again. And I'm like, why? Why is this here? If if it's because like I thought he was foreshadowing something, yeah. And then nothing happens of it. I'm like, w did you just love what you wrote there? Because this whole thing where like he didn't have his hands on the wheel, and like, and then they turned, and then he came into the turn, and it was just like, you know, it was like, I don't know, this is more of Chris controlling the world or something. But if it's that, like, that's stupid. Yeah, or nothing. Like, he has, feels like there's nothing. Yeah, like, I don't know. yeah, yeah, I don't know. But even then, I was like, so nobody gets into a car accident here. I mean, I thought, you know, <laughs> it's like at some point, you know, 
you know that that we keep hearing that stair creak in the house at some point somebody the stair the, the stair is gonna break right you know like and, and it never does so I was just that just kind of bugged me anyway. yeah no no I would agree that was and, and then it got fixed up and I don't know he always liked to yeah. look at it when he passed yeah it's very I feel like there was something else I've seen that there it, there's that of stopping at a some sort of but I I don't think I can think of it mm-hmm. no I I don't know that yeah. I could exactly say why mm-hmm. you wrote that <laughs> oh i know there was one because we were of course we've been talking about chris and tessa the entire time but then mm-hmm. we also have tessa and some of her students in particular florence yeah so what is the effect of using florence's translations throughout the text in particular uh, to start each of the parts and then at the very end i think the daphne's response i think is all translated by florence yes as well how did you interpret her and Tessa's relationship? Is this a healthy or exemplary student mentor experience? I think it's certainly healthier than her and Chris. Yeah. But I think it is healthy because Florence at one point is about to quit. Yep. And go to the law school. Yeah, and go to law school. And um and and Tessa you know, is is Tessa is warm and encouraging toward her and at the end we see that Florence stuck with it and, and I think we're supposed to gather that it's because of Tessa and, and that Tessa was a better, much better mentor. I would have liked to see a little bit more of that, you know, like, cause yeah. that would have been an interesting, that would have been an interesting juxtaposition of a relationship. We get bits and pieces of it, yep. but I think we didn't get enough of it because she is again, like with Lucretia, she was not being competitive and backstabby. Um, on purpose, you know, and with Florence, she is not, again, she's not doing what Chris did to her, which is something she would be determined to do. And sometimes in stories like this, you have that happen where she turns into the villain that she was trying to, you know, vanquish. Um, and I don't think she does a complete heel turn here. I think she really is like, you know, I think she is a good mentor because she is inherently a good person. Even if toward the end, not a hundred percent, right? So, so yeah, it would have been interesting to see more of this. And, and that relationship passes the Bechtel test. Yes. Because Claire, they talk about Chris, and mm-hmm. um, Lucrecia, they talk about that that guy whose buttocks has to be shaved because of. Oh, it's like Alfonso, or it's, it's something. something it's, it's something, something Italian. very, very Italian. Yeah. yeah, that was an interesting uh, little side trail. I I really liked it. I think this is a prime example of women supporting women. Yep. And also that women are kind of like in this maybe perpetual state of being gaslit, or just under mm-hmm. the assumption that they're like they're not where they should be, or they're making mistakes because Tessa's in the library looking at one of her tra- at Florence's translation and she's just astounded by the beauty of the translation uh, because you can be kind of literal or you can kind of take some leeway with with the English and as we know with you know reading the Aeneid and and you the Odyssey yeah. and so she says like see me and Florence assumes this is a negative and that was like the yeah. last thing she said, like, you wrote, see me on this translation. And Tessa's like, no, 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 you have this power with translating. And so Florence was in that assumption that it must be negative because I think we're well, often told, like, you know, we're not measuring up to where we should be. Yeah. And, and, and see me is a classic, even down to like grade school is the classic. Uh Oh, I'm in trouble with yeah. the teacher 
you know, so it, it, I totally see how that would, but you're right. You're right. And, and the other thing is, is like, um, because of the way that Chris operated, Claire, not Claire, sorry, I'm doing it too now. Tessa could have, com, could have completely misinterpreted that being overly critical some, of someone is quote, teaching. Yeah. Right. I made that mistake as a teacher early, you know, I, sometimes I do now, but earlier in my career, I certainly was way too critical of students writing and I would like totally tear it apart. Um, when unnecessary, I mean, some of it needed to be torn apart, but some of it, I was just being like, you know, I don't know if I was purposely being cruel, but I think I was just, I think in my mind, I was like, oh, I gotta be thorough. Right. And, and so that idea that you, you're not doing it right, unless you're just completely tearing something to shreds. When you do that, all you're looking for is the mistakes as opposed to like really looking for and really allowing yourself to enjoy the good that is there and what is there, you know, like, mm -hmm. so, you know, so, um, I think that her doing that really was a turn for the better for, for Tessa and obviously for Florence. I like Tessa seeing Florence in the audience during her roast of Chris at the presentation of the actual evidence, uh, because I think Florence, I can't remember if she comes up to her afterwards, but I think Florence also sees like, oh, there is. Because maybe Florence thought, thought that this was dead end. It was male dominated. It was basically Florence and Tessa and then mm -hmm. a bunch of men in that particular department. And so perhaps she thought it was a dead end and, and there was really yeah. nowhere to go. And But seeing Tessa slay, I think, maybe gave her some hope. And then I'm hoping that it is a positive interaction and that there are, are changes and differences. I think using her translations in this book almost shows that how much Tessa, Tessa does appreciate Florence's translations. And yeah. um, almost as if, you know, Tessa's writing this book. So I, I feel like I hope that she changes from, you know, what had been done to her. Um, that this she's not paying it forward, but it's uh, yeah better. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I liked that too, and I thought it was a nice touch to use Florence's translations in the book too, because it did again, it was uh, a little bit of growth on the part of of Tess there. So, but he kept having to go back to Chris. So. <laughs> and I, I thought it was interesting that she turns down Phoebe's offer to stay where she is, although. I don't think we ever see her turn it down. I think we just jump to the future and she's at Oxford still. She's interim, but she has it on a good authority that she's probably going to be permanently placed yeah. there. So do you, would you have done it? Would you have taken that offer even though it was risky that she wasn't going to get a full-time position at UCLA? That's a good question. I don't know to be completely honest with you because yeah, like I don't know how the, I, I I don't know how long she had to to how long the offer would have been open and if she would have been able to see whether or not the dust was going to settle on uh, what had happened at the conference and everything like that. Yeah, I want to say she saw thought that through very thoroughly though, and perhaps on her own too, like not going to her sister and things for advice because that's one of her issues is that she never. She there's only a couple of times in the entire book where she's really making a decision on her own and for herself in a way that is not like somebody prodding her to do it or her going to somebody else for advice to do it. Like, you know, and I think that's one of the few times she does. I think her staying, though, at Westphaling 
shows her that she's just unable to sever that connection with Chris. I think you're right there, too. Because if she had actually gone to UCLA, I think we could have seen, like, this is a new era of Tessa. Florence notwithstanding, because, of course, she'd be abandoning her. But just, like, for Tessa, she really needed to cut Chris off. And the fact that she didn't, I think, is, in my opinion, is a character flaw. Yeah. But I wonder if now, after everything, after that her paper that was published after the the Marius and the true authorship of that, whether it would have been more certain that she could have received a full-time role at UCLA. That's a good question as well. And I wonder if, if she had left for UCLA, would Florence just simply had gone to law school or would Florence have become the new Tessa and Chris would have abused her? Another personal question. If your mm. girlfriend's father died, but you were scheduled to present a paper, <laughs> not knowing that this would launch you into being well-regarded and oh. well-known, uh, but you stay a little bit but not for the entire funeral activities, w- would you do that? Mm, you know, her and Ben were living together, right? Yeah. Or, or they, they were like, this wasn't just like some guy she'd been dating for a couple of months. This was like a very, very serious relationship. Probably at the point where we, one or both of them were thinking about whether or not they were going to get married. Um, I, that's, that's how seriously I took the relationship, especially the way she took the breakup. I, that far along, I probably would have gone to the funeral and just bowed out of the, um, because, you know, well, cause I mean, you know, I've been married for 20 years now, but my wife and I were together for seven years before we actually got married. And I went to her, uh, her grandfather's funeral. You know, we were, we were only living together. Um, we hadn't even gotten engaged yet, you know, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, no, I think, I think that you are obligated is, is, a, is a cold way to put it, but you are, you know, that's part of the commitment mm-hmm. is standing by their side, especially this is a parent. This isn't like, you know, my uncle died, you know, <laughs> not to bring, make it about me, but like, you know, this isn't, this isn't like, you know, you're, you're, or, or your cousin or something. It's, it's just, fa- it's a father. Yeah, and so, um, so it's not like, like yeah, I yeah. yeah, no, this is, yeah, that was, that was, uh, I can see how he took that. I kind of agree with him. I'm like, you know, yeah, clearly you were not important and it hurts a lot, but maybe that's what you needed to come to the realization that like, you know, no, I, I, I don't think we can do this anymore. You know, how many times are you going to let yourself get hurt? Right. I agree with you. I've made poor choices in my past. So I, I do feel for her of like, <laughs> Oh gosh, you know, should I actually have done such and such? And I didn't do it. So I do have empathy for her and those choices that she made, but yeah, I, I, that was whoo. Poor Ben. Inviting Shag onto your podcast is different than not attending your boyfriend's funeral, Stella. Well, yeah, nothing that. <laughs> Let's talk about degrees just... of poor choices. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, no, no, no. I, I, I said once again to rail the episode. No, yeah, I know. Poor Shag. Poor Shag. 
Yeah, so I mean, I I have empathy for her in certain situations, even though I am I condemn some of the choices that she makes. She, there are things about I don't want to say that he doesn't know how to write a female character because she he, he there are things about her that like just based on people I know and and my and I I know I you know I know and I'm friends with a lot of women. Some of this tracks very well. Like I'm like she's a very realized character. It's just there are certain things there where I'm just like very male <laughs> there's just very a lot of male in the writing of of her but some of the ways that she responds to things and stuff like that i'm like it's it is quite realistic yeah do you think if a woman had written it they wouldn't have had sex yeah i wonder if that that first scene would have been there i think that the attempted rape at the end might have i do think it's a little heavy-handed anyway but if we're getting to that, um, I don't know, maybe even the rape scene wouldn't have been. I think, because to me, the climax of the novel is that it should be the conference where she presents her paper True, and, yeah. and obliterates him. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's someone with an ego the size of him isn't, you know, being completely taken down and then have her career track get turned around at, at his expense and. You know, is he exposed for what he did or something? And and he has to live his life in, like, humiliation from that point on. Uh, that would have been pretty cool to see. Uh, although, I guess then then the whole, like, I'm going to stalk and, and, and take what's mine, in quotes, would have worked, too. But even then, that just becomes, like, some bad tv movie trope or something like that so i don't know if a woman would have written yeah i can't really i can't really say anything i mean i'd, I'd like to see, know what you think because you know obviously i'm i'm also a male so so i can't really get into the head of what a woman would have written but i don't know i think i think a really really skillful woman writer would have made would have truly made the her her academic takedown of him the climax because that was what we were all waiting for anyway i i think we needed a somewhat violent scene at the very least if the premise is based off of Daphne and Apollo. Okay. So depending on how closely this guy was going to follow that, I think that needed to happen somehow. You know how in media and stuff, like, people get into arguments, like, in a TV or film, and, like, they're screaming at each other, and then all of a sudden it, like, devolves into sex somehow? Like, Um, I guess that's what's happening there. I, I don't, you know, just, like their emotions are very high and it turns into something. But I just feel like there are so many red flags going on. The fact that you're even trying to entrap him in mentioning Ohio because you think that he might be surveilling you. And then you're doing this kind of stuff. And it's more like I could more explain him because he might be going through some grief because of his mother. But with her, I'm just like, what are you doing? I mean, when she agrees to stay at his place, I was already in a what are you doing situation because there had to be some place else she could stay that wasn't there. Didn't she have an office or something? She might have. Well, I think she was sharing with somebody. But even I remember she talked to like one of the kind of the managers to see if one of the undergrads or something had moved out early. So she had yes. a couple days. I could probably sleep in the library. Who's going to really catch you? But no, that was like the first kind of poor decision making that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just I'm confused because 
this relationship between the two of them is so complicated and there are so many feelings and things wrapped up in one another that I can't even make a straight sort of comment. For me, like, I just, even if I were in love with someone, if they are proving to themselves multiple times that, like, they're doing things in order for me to stay with them, but it is negative against my career and they're kind of being creepy about it, like, I am not going to put myself in bad situations like that. Yeah. So I think I would have had a confrontation and that would have happened, but I would have struck out that. I mean, that whole scene in the funeral, that, that was also, that boggled the mind. Just she was like kind of delighted that this cheap, just touching thighs, you know, had this power of her. I'm like, <clears throat> what? What are you talking about? That is, that so, is a man writing. Yeah. Woman. So I think there are some aspects that would have changed. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read Gone Girl. Because oh, that, yeah, ago, yeah, that main I... character is nuts. But a woman, <laughs> a woman is writing her, and so I kind of like keep thinking about that for whatever reason. This doesn't go as off the rails as that one does. Yeah. But I, I, I think that's as much as I can say about like intentionality if and how it would change if a woman was writing it. But I, I think there needed to be a scene. But I would have taken that sex scene out. And and really, I feel like I'm not the we're not the only ones because when I. I was looking at comments and things on Goodreads. It was like, absolutely. Like these people were coming, women were saying like, why, why on earth would they have, you know, had sex and, and all like that is yeah. the, the bad decision making. Cause you yeah, can get confused that's... if your emotions are all wrapped up, but I think at a certain point you're not going to make those poor decisions. Yeah, I agree with you. Gone girl is an interesting case because so much of gone girl is like deliberately satirical. Or, or a commentary on a type of like even like as like a, the way when Amy narrates things and she talks about certain things like you can see almost like there's a meta commentary going on there that uh, it'd be worth exploring in a future episode. We should do that book at some point um, yeah. where we won't be doing that book next time. Don't worry. But um with this, if he's trying to have some sort of commentary in academia or be satirical or something, his approach is too straightforward to really for it to really work. Yeah, and and again, I, I I'm kind of with those reviewers. Like, why is the sex scene there? <laughs> yeah, his thigh touched mine in a funeral parlor. Oh, oh come on. I think the one thing that's really interesting is how he presents the underhandedness of people against a setting that is almost idyllic. You're talking about Oxford, which academic wise has like this reputation of like it 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 you know if if it were taking place in the states they'd be at like harvard you know like that's sort of very epitome of academia sort of um you can see the walls smell the air hear that like it's just it is it, it is the academic stream and then even his mother's farm is this with the sheep and everything, it's idyllic in a way, right? It's, it's this beautiful pastoral sort of moment. And his mother was a pretty horrible person, you know? So there's this sort of, um, he's, I mean, maybe he's selling it a little too much or or he's being a little too straightforward with it, but I think we can appreciate the way that he, he does set up these beautiful scenes and beautiful settings. And this just, gross underbelly to it you know that the people there are not 
don't match the background. He hit her with a rake handle. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting, too. And again, we're getting his backstory, and I guess it's good to get that. But at the same time, it's just, how do you want me to feel about this? You're, you're coming into this a couple hundred pages in, and I already hate this man for what he did. Like, any chance for me to gain sympathy and or understanding from him was lost chapters ago. I mean, nearly immediately. Basically, when you find out, I guess, that he he cloned the computer, which is pretty soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, Tom, is this required reading? I'm going to say no. As much as I did enjoy reading it, I felt it was compelling. Yeah. I left with too much just annoyance <laughs> that I wouldn't really want anybody to, to to read this if they didn't have to. Uh, yeah, I'll agree with you. Uh, I'll give you some space, but there's another Latin novel that I'm interested in. This one written by Donna Tart. So it'll be interesting to compare those two. And see if one it's not the Goldfinch, is it? No, 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 no. no, no, no. <laughs> oh, the Goldfinch. My gosh, so much pain, agony, drug use. No, it's it somewhere not. on my Kindle, I think. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'll, right. I'll agree that it's uh, no, but I do think that all of its metamorphoses is required reading. But we are not doing that. So mm, there you no, go. we maybe we will at one point. Maybe a poetry. So, yeah. Unit. yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, before we get into our next book, we do have some feedback. Uh, just a quick uh, Facebook comment from Janine Mercer, who was talking about the uh, Papillon episode. And she says another great episode, even though it's been a, it's been said the book is only 75 percent true at best. And that Charrier, I think that's how you pronounce it, took a lot of liberties and pirated many other prisoners stories. I think it's an interesting read. So and I think you really, really enjoyed it. I remember being kind of lukewarm on it, but I do totally see what she's saying from what I remember. Yeah. So. No, yeah, I mean, it was my top book of 2022, I would say. Um, yeah, so I very much enjoyed it. But I know, I mean, I brought it up, the fact that there is, it is controversial in terms of did he write it or did he not. So I think, though, we really based our discussion on that, the assumption that he did and kind of went from there. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's something to keep in the back of your mind for sure. Now, I have a question for you. Sure. Because the episode that just posted is Streetcar Named Desire. And something yes. that's been bothering me since we recorded, but I didn't, but mm. I didn't say anything because I've been like just wondering if I had a misrepresentation of it. In your synopsis, you say that Blanche prostitutes out of the hotel. And I, I didn't get that idea. Um, she clearly, like, if we think of it in terms of tone, mm. um, what she's doing kind of is prostitute. But I always felt like she was looking for gentleman callers and someone to, like, take care of her. But did do you – was it very much there in, I guess, subtext or more directly that she is actually mm. – she's, like, having sex with these men and getting paid for it? Because I thought her point was, like, she wanted to shack up – marry, like, shack up and – have a financially secure future. Sorry. No, full, <laughs> I'm no, no, throwing full, it out there, but full uh, yeah, disclosure, I've been about it. Full, full disclosure. And I think I say it in the episode, it was the Wikipedia summary. Right, so I yes. didn't write the summary, but when I think of it, I think you're more correct, but I will say 
in the end when it comes to Mitch, right? That's the guy she's courting. I think so. Yeah. Um, I don't think it matters because in his mind, her being associated with a brothel like that means that she was prostituting yeah. herself. And that's why he gets all like, you're a dirty, dirty, <laughs> you know, the W word. And um, he actually doesn't say that. But basically, that's what he's implying. So I don't think it really matters in the end, yeah. at least the it's way she's chance. treated by, by Mitch. But I do I do think that I I don't think that she was desperate to that point, uh, you know, at that point, had she not had this breakdown and then had to, but just simply had to leave, um, Stella and, and Stanley's house, maybe it would have gotten that desperate, but you know, the, the indiscretions that she had with some students, but again, I think that was, that was more carnal than it was transactional. Is that right? Yeah. You know, like, like there was, there were feelings and I, I always, yeah, I, I'm kind of with you. I think I got the feeling there, there were feelings involved in all these cases. And she was, she was looking for a gentleman, yeah. so to speak. And she was looking for a husband. And that was kind of like, there, there was a desperation there, but yeah, I think you're right. I don't think she actually went that far, but, yeah. but your yeah, association and appearances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. Your synopsis, but by your synopsis, I mean, I remember that it was from Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's like, okay, that makes sense now. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Well, I guess it's time for me to tell you what we're reading for next time. Well, yeah, behind the curtain, you know, Tom was suggesting that he might go, quote, was it cheat? Like, do a cheat book or something? I'm like, well, will no, it be a I cheat think... book for me? <laughs> he said, I, I don't know. Said... Getting my phone out. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let's bring uh, up uh, the uh. evidence. Is it wrong of me to want to do an entirely lazy pick uh, for my next episode? Okay. You are the one who asked, is it a cheat if I use the reading questions? <laughs> okay. back of the- but I We're think really- I also asked, will the book be lazy for me, too? Yes. But you don't yes. know. So I guess I don't know. Mind. I know you probably have read it, though. Grace of Wrath. No. <laughs> Even lazier, Stella, somewhere along the lines of, of what we because we, 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 you know, Apollo and Daphne is a, is a tragic sort of love story. Right. Oh you know, I mean, it's and it's I mean, it ends tragically, at least for Daphne. But it is I guess there's some sort of love story behind oh it. If word. you want to. Are you doing so, what I think you're doing? Yes, Stella. Um, we are going to be reading the tragic love story. <laughs> I think it's time to finally rip the Band-Aid off, Stella, and discuss William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I cannot believe this. People, you don't know how much he complains about this play. This is nuts. The play, as I call it. Well, now we'll have to watch or do our little podcast special on interpretations, adaptations. Yes. Yes, yes. So we'll 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 get that set up as well, and and we'll talk about um where and when that's going to happen on my show and stuff like that when we're on the next episode. But yes, Romeo and Juliet for the next episode. Um, so come back in a month for that. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and take care. And listen, if you find out that someone's written you 
Actually, you've got some options. First of all, you can actually click on your application to see reference letters. Sometimes. This is true. So maybe I would do that or someone that you really trust, which I guess she trusted because he he was hesitating for, at first to write it. So she should have just gone somewhere else. And number two, if someone, I mean, honestly, that's fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. If someone does something dirty like that to you, don't keep going back to that person. That's all I have to say. That's excellent advice, oh, to be you. completely honest with you. Yeah. So so I don't really have anything to counter that except to say uh, goodnight. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcast. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.